0: Bibles to First Thessalonians. If you've got a pew Bible, uh, we're going to be on page 1046. We've been going through the book of Genesis lately, and we came to a kind of a natural pause point with the end of the story of Joseph. We're transitioning to the story, or sorry, the end of the story of Jacob. We're transitioning to the story of Joseph. So I thought we'd take a, a little bit of a break and jump into the New Testament for a little while. We'll spend eight weeks here in First Thessalonians. Um, as always, if you have any questions as we walk through this chapter, you can go to slido.com and type in Rev. CDA in the prompt and anonymously ask your question. We'll take a look at those at the end this morning. Um, but as we get started, let me pray for us one more time and we'll dig in. Lord God, we are, we are people that have um, identified many of us uh, with Christ, that we have said we belong to Jesus, that we take this this text, these 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 scriptures as our authority, that we live our lives underneath them, and as as you have inspired um, this to be written to this ancient church, um, we believe that you're still writing things for our benefit today, and that uh, this word applies to us today. And I just pray that as we um, read the Thessalonians' mail, as it were, that we would be uh, stirred to um, greater faith and and more awe of you and uh, just a, a passion for good works in light of your soon return. And I just pray that in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so the year was 48. Not 2048, not 1948, but just 48. And I was going to I was going to buy a laser pointer for this part, but I did not. So we're going to do this. So there's a group of Christian missionaries and they are Right there, in eastern Turkey, wandering around from city to city, sharing the news about Jesus, that he is the true king, uh, and that he proved his authority by raising from the dead. And they were pretty excited about this, and they were going everywhere that they could telling people this good news. And they wanted, desperately, to go to the west to this part of Turkey over here. But for some reason, God told them no. He didn't want them over there. And they were confused about that, and they kept trying to go different directions around Turkey to figure it out. And all of a sudden, one of them, one of the the men in this missionary team had a dream. And in that dream was a man, and that man was from Macedonia. And that Macedonian man said, come and help us. Macedonia is right there, what we would call Greece. And so they went across the sea to Macedonia, and they landed in a town called Philippi, and they did some ministry there. And then they went to a town called Amphipolis, and then a town called Apollyanna. And then they made it to a city called Thessalonica. The the men in this group were named Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And we read in Acts 17 what happened there. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollyanna, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on the three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, "'These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus.'" The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset, and after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So what I want us to key into in this text in Acts is that the enemies of Christianity, the enemies of God's people, saw what they were doing in the world. They saw the message they were proclaiming and said, these are the men that have turned the world upside down. This is the reputation of the early church. This this message that they were sharing with everybody they could find was world-changing, paradigm-shifting, even riot-causing. It wasn't a, a quiet, spiritual, warm, fuzzy feeling. It was a political overthrow of the powers that ruled the world. At least that's the way the Thessalonians saw it. And so Paul and Silas have to leave Thessalonica, which is kind of up here at the top of Greece. Ooh, there. And they went all the way down to the bottom of Greece to Athens. And Paul meets up with Timothy in Athens and sends him back to Thessalonica to check on them because they had to leave in a hurry, and Paul's worried about this church. Then Paul continues on to Corinth, where he stays for a while, At this point, Timothy catches back up and gives a report of the faithfulness of the Thessalonian church, this brand new outpost of the kingdom of God. And it's probably the spring of the year 50 that Paul writes back to the church at Thessalonica to encourage them to continue on in this world-shaping allegiance to Jesus, the true king, in spite of cultural pressure and persecution. So this makes 1 Thessalonians Paul's earliest letter, and this might be the earliest document we have in the New Testament. But as we begin this book this morning, I think it's important to realize that Paul is not the only author of this letter. He's a primary author, but he addresses it from, in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, which is another way to say Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. E. Randy Richards, who's an expert in first century letter writing, says that Paul's letter was the expression of the group's consensus reached by dialogue. I think we often think of Paul sitting by himself at a desk writing these letters, but the reality is it was more of a group project. These three men who had been, um, who who loved the Thessalonians, who, who brought them the message of the gospel and cared about them, sat down to write this letter to them. And while in Acts, we see that Paul's first encounter with the citizens of Thessalonica was at the Jewish synagogue, about a year later, a year and a half later, the church is primarily non-Jewish Christians, it seems, based on the contents of this letter. Paul's gonna commend them at the end of this chapter from turning from idols. This isn't something you'd expect with regard to a Jewish audience. And Paul doesn't quote a lot from the Hebrew Bible. So the guess from scholars today is that there weren't a lot of Jewish people in the church. And as we work through chapter one this morning, the team is going to share why, are they, why they're thankful to God for the Thessalonians and how they pray for them. And I want to take a look at three ways that, that Paul and the team say that they're thankful. They're, they're thankful for their experience of Christ. They're thankful for their response to the gospel. And they're thankful for their example to the church. So first off, their experience of Christ. If we jump to verse four, we read, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Paul is confident that the Thessalonians are loved and have been chosen by God. And this is really important. I think we talk about this fairly often, but God is always the one that moves first in our relationships, Like, whoever we are, however we came to faith, God is always the first mover. He is the one that pursues people. He chooses people. He reveals himself to people and calls us to respond. John Byron says, being chosen by God gives a divine sense of belonging to the Thessalonian believers that was not found in many other religions. It gave them a sense of belonging while at the same time severing their previous social and family ties. See, the Thessalonians aren't just dabbling in some new spiritual ideas. They've been brought into a new spiritual family. I was thinking about this this idea of being brought into something new this week, and um, I'm remodeling a bathroom, and so I've spent so many... Days at Ace Hardware. But I'm I'm an Ace Rewards member. I don't know what that means. But they ask me for my phone number every time I go, and I tell them. And I've never I've never seen any fruit from that. But I I know I'm in, I'm in the club. I also I'm also a member at Fred Meyer, and and I occasionally get three cents of savings in gas. At Qdoba, every 10th burrito is free. So I'm a member of all of these different groups. But I think this is often how we see ourselves in the church. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm affiliated with this thing here. I got, I signed up, I got baptized, maybe I put a sticker on my car. And that's this, this loose affiliation that we have that doesn't really mean much to us. But Paul sees the Thessalonians very different than this. He uses language that comes from God's word to the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 7, we read, the Lord has set his has his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And, and Paul is keying in on these ideas of love and choice because he wants the Thessalonians to know that they have been supernaturally adopted into a new family, that has deep ties to the creator of the universe and the rest of his people. This is one of the reasons why, if you've you've been through our membership class, this is why we we have an an official formal membership at this church, because I feel like the identification we make with the people of God is important. And while that's not the only way you can identify with the people of God in a a church context, it is a very um, poignant one. And it's a very countercultural one to say, no, I am covenanting with these people, this particular expression of God's church, and and I am all in. And this is the, the heart behind what Paul is telling the Thessalonians is you have been added to this new family. If you're a Christian here this morning, your place in the people of God is a supernatural adoption. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, like, I am confident that this is true of you. But what does he base his confidence on? The first thing is is the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's team comes to the Thessalonians and they preach the word of God. And this is a necessary fact of salvation. The word of God must be preached. We must understand the gospel message to become Christians. In Romans, Paul says, how then can they call on him whom they've not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? The message of the gospel is to be believed. It is a it is a word with specific content. A a little later this morning, we'll recite the Nicene Creed together, and this is this ancient uh, structured creedal statement of the content of our faith. This is what it means to believe the things that Christians believe. Doctrine matters. What we believe matters. It's one of the things we rally around. But doctrine isn't enough. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half telling them doctrine is not enough. And the reality is there are multitudes of men and women that study the scriptures for a living. Around Easter time, we've just gone through this season and you're, there's probably, there was probably a documentary on the History Channel talking about the resurrection and they interviewed a bunch of PhDs in New Testament that actually don't believe the gospel. You can study the scriptures and have it not affect your life. But Paul says, no, it's, it's different with you, Thessalonians. You have been chosen by God because the Holy Spirit's power is at work in your lives. You didn't just hear the word, the Spirit moved. Supernatural, miraculous things happened among this church because God's Spirit was at work in them and through them. And this is what happens when people believe the gospel God moves. If we read through the book of Acts, we see over and over and over again that the Holy Spirit is constantly moving in the people that have accepted the message of Jesus. Francis Chan writes, the church is not empowered to live differently from any other gathered people without the Holy Spirit. If we do not have the Holy Spirit, we're just a rotary club. What does that look like? Well, we've seen this in this church. Many of you have experienced this. Demons have been cast out, words of knowledge and prophecy, supernatural insight into the heart of people, healing of physical ailments. We should expect God to move like this in a group of people that have believed the gospel. And it's not recorded in the book of Acts, but does this mean that, that these kind of crazy, unexplainable things happened to the Thessalonians? Probably, this is the language that Paul is using. But look also at the specific thing that Paul points to as evidence of the Spirit's power. In the back half of verse five, you know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy, from the Holy Spirit. Paul's team experienced persecution in Thessalonica. They were kicked out of the city. And the new believers there experienced it as well. And they responded to these evil things that had been done to them by acting like Paul's team and acting like Jesus himself because they expressed joy in the face of trials. And this too is a supernatural expression of God's Holy Spirit. In the youth group on Wednesday nights, we're, we're going through the fruit of the Spirit. We're doing one aspect of the fruit every week. And, and when we got to joy, we talked a lot about how oftentimes when we see joy in the Scriptures, it is almost always connected to suffering. Why is that? Because radical, unexplained joy in the midst of suffering and difficulty is a powerful work of the Spirit of God in the life of the Christian. Like we aren't naturally primed to be, to be joyful when bad things are happening to us. But one of the signs that the Holy Spirit is working in your life is a strange, unexplainable joy when things are difficult. Francis Chan again, you don't need the Holy Spirit if you are merely seeking to live a semi-moral life and attend church regularly. You can find people of all sorts in many religions doing that quite, quite nicely without him. But then the question for us is, do we see the supernatural characteristics of Jesus in our lives? This is the the verse in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we look at that list of pretty common virtues that everyone experiences here and there from time to time, do we experience them at a level that the onlooking world would say is supernatural? Supernatural? how is it possible that you are so self-controlled in this situation? Wow, I could never do that. How, How come you're not freaking out right now? How come things are so bad, but you just have such a joyful presence? These are miraculous things that the Holy Spirit is doing and has done in the Thessalonian church. The Thessalonians were suffering, and they were simultaneously experiencing joy. And Paul points to this as evidence of their experience with Christ. And this is a really hard thing to grapple with because we all suffer, right? Suffering is a given. It is going to happen in your life if you live long enough. And we want to make sense of that suffering. We want to figure out why we are suffering. If this bad thing happened to me, it must be because of this reason. And and we, we generate all kinds of reasons why these things happen. But Paul's going to say later on that this suffering, maybe for the Thessalonians, is meant to just serve as an example of faithfulness for others. See, see, we want to be people who see fire come down from heaven and speak in tongues and, and experience healings and see mysterious glowing auras of spiritual power and then go like, wow, God must be with them. Because that sounds awesome. But what if the reality for us is Look at the pain they're experiencing. Look at the loss they feel. Look how life is for them right now. But look at their peace, their joy, their contentment. Wow, God must be with them. And sometimes I think suffering largely is for the witness of the Spirit of God in our lives. That we are going to respond differently than people that do not have the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be a testimony of the power of God. And Paul is thankful for the Thessalonians and their experience of Christ, but he's also thankful for their response to the gospel. Look back to verse 3. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. As Protestants, we can get a little twitchy when we talk about work. We're saved by grace through faith, right? Yes. Correct. Not of works, lest anyone can boast. That's true. But the scriptures are filled with the idea that those people that have received the grace of God respond in faith and action. Gordon Fee writes, true faith in Christ, as with true faith in the Old Testament, expresses itself in work. This doesn't mean that we earn our salvation. It doesn't mean that we put God in our debt but it does mean that we take seriously the call to follow Christ and his power that he has given us and is at working inside us. Paul uses three words that connect with struggle. He says, your work, your labor, and your endurance. These are difficult things. But then he pairs them with some of his three favorite words, faith, hope, and love. J.B. Lightfoot says, faith rests on the past, love works in the present, and hope looks to the future. The Thessalonians have faith. They they trust in God, the work that God has already done, and it prompts them to work, to serve, to respond to what he's done for them with their actions. Paul says they have love, and it's particularly love for other people that, that motivates them to labor, to strain, to fight for the good of others. And this reality that the future that they were going to experience was written by the Lord Jesus Christ, this gives them power to continue when things are difficult, to endure through suffering. I think it's important to see that we're we're not just called to adopt an intellectual system of ideas as Christians. We're born again into a new kind of life. John Stott writes, every Christian without exception is a believer, a lover, and a hoper. Faith, hope, and love are thus sure evidences of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Paul and his team are rejoicing that the Thessalonians not only experienced Christ, but that experience actually changed their way of life. And it marked them by service and dedication to others. Byron again says an important part of the story of the church like the story of Israel is that it is not saved for itself. It is saved to be part of the mission of God to the world. Therefore, we should ask ourselves how our lives should be different because of the hope we have that Jesus will one day return. As Christians, we have been people that have been transformed into new kinds of people. But I wonder if maybe some of us are hearing this and thinking, like, I don't really think Jesus has made me very different. I don't I don't feel different. And I... I have three ideas about that that I want to share this morning. The first might be that you're just one of those people that's too hard on yourself. Um, Maybe maybe you know people like this. Maybe you are one of these people that no matter how amazing the thing that you accomplish is, you're still like, man, it just wasn't good enough. You always expect to fail. You always expect somebody's going to look at you and find the flaws. You've just got that internal voice that seems louder than everyone else's that says, you're not good enough. And that might be you this morning, and you're hearing like, man, I just don't feel like I've been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And maybe, that, maybe that's a godly humility that you've developed. Maybe it's also a message of shame that you grew up with, that you've internalized. For some reason, you just can't see the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And if that's you this morning, I would say that this is one of the reasons why you need the church You need the church to step into the role that Paul is playing here and remind you of your worth. It is our responsibility as God's people to be the ones that remind one another of the grace of God working in our lives. Um, Paul says in, in Romans 12, he says, outdo each other in showing honor, that we should be people that are on the lookout to point out the way that God is moving among us. Paul is this example of the Thessalonians that, hey, you know what? I see this in you. And this is something that we can put into practice. I grew up, I think, believing that if you told something, uh, if you complimented somebody about some kind of spiritual thing, you were going to like puff them up and make them proud. Um, I don't know why I believed that because I, I need to hear that. I need to hear, hey, I see God working in your life. I see the Spirit of God at work here. Praise God for you and the blessing that you are This community. And and if you see that, be like Paul. Share that with people. Encourage people. Because they might be people that just can't see it in themselves. That might be you, or or secondarily, you, you might be immature. This could be because you haven't been a Christian for very long. May some of you here maybe are just brand new as Christians. You're like, I don't know that I see a whole lot of progress. And and that's okay. But it also could be that you've been a Christian for a long time and you've just neglected to partner with God in the process of your salvation. We are invited into this new life of participating with the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's not a passive thing. It's something that we get to do with God. Philippians 2, Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in both to will and to work according to his good purpose. I love how Paul just doesn't care that that seems like it's a tension. I, I want you to work hard because it's God working in you. And you're like, well, which one is it? It's both. But the truth is, is we're not gonna become godly people by osmosis. I think it's it's easy to think, well, if God wants me to be different, he'll just change me. and let me assure you, he wants you to be different. He wants you to look like Jesus. And he, he wants to change you. He's inviting you to be transformed by his power in you, but we all have to be people that put in the work. And it's not complicated. It's, it's the scriptures and prayer and self-denial and community and mission and service. So these, these things that the church has been about for the last 2,000 years are the very simple things that make us more like Jesus. And some of us, if, if, if you're in here and you've been a Christian for a long time and you're going like, I just don't feel like Jesus has changed me, maybe you've just been wasting years of fruitfulness because you've been unwilling to do the hard work. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 5 says, we have a great deal to say about this and it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk and not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. See, so the author of the book of Hebrews recognizes that some of us as Christians are, have just been wasting our lives, have been refusing to get in the game to participate in the growth that God wants for us, but it's available should we desire it. And we, I, I, we see this in, in, in many, many people who, who, are, who love the Lord, but just stay kind of immature. When we should be men and women who are able to speak to the issues of our day with a, a, a theological understanding of what the Bible says, we just don't know our, the Scriptures. When we should be people who can be called on to pray, we don't feel confident to do that. When we say, like, I just can't, I can't memorize the Bible. I don't, I don't know the Word of God, but, but we have plenty of time to memorize sports statistics or funny lines from movies. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've been a Christian for years, maybe decades, and, and you're like, man, I just don't really see this supernatural life in me. And, and, and hear what I think is the heart of God. And it's not shame, it's not, it's not a desire that you feel bad, that you wallow in, in pity and, and feel like you've let God down, but, but it's a call to, come on, let's, let's do this life together. My youngest is learning how to read and it's hard for her. And she works at it and she works at it. And some days she gets up and she's like, I don't wanna do this today. And as her father, my heart is not shame on you, but come on, you will, you will love it when you read. I don't know if, if you have kids or, or remember being young and like driving in your car right after you learned to read and been like, hey, that says Burger King. And it just opens up a world to you that you've never experienced before. And this is my heart for Nora that you're going to love it so much. And this is God's heart for all of us. Man, if, if you're not putting in the work to grow spiritually, you don't know what you're missing. But there's a third option. Maybe I don't know everyone in here this morning. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're hearing about this transformational power of the Spirit of God, and you're like, I don't know what that, I don't know anything about that. I have no idea what you're talking about. And it's possible that you've not experienced these things because you've never really believed the gospel. Maybe you've been a church person for a long time. Maybe you've thought you were a Christian because of the context you grew up in. But maybe you're not sure anymore. Maybe maybe you're here this morning. You know you're not a Christian. You you came with somebody because they uh, convinced you to come to church. Maybe you're curious about faith but today you can choose to follow Christ. You can choose to turn from your life of self-centeredness, from the sin that you gravitate towards, and you can give your life over to him. You can ask him to inhabit you with his Holy Spirit and to change you from the inside out, to begin to trust in him for the first time. Because the reality is, is if, if you are a follower of Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will transform your life if you want him to. If you're tired of of pretending, if you're tired of trying to figure out your own life under your own power, Jesus offer is that he would take your burdens and give you rest. And the the paradox of that statement is that the Christian life is a kind of life that is a different kind of hard, but it's a hard that is full of joy and satisfaction in Christ. And Paul is thankful for the Thessalonians experience of Christ, their their response to the gospel, but he's also thankful for the example that they are to the church. Look at verse seven. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia for the word of the Lord rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything for they themselves report what kind of reception we have had from you. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So the Thessalonian church has been so transformed by the power of the gospel that people all around the known world start talking about it. And what happened to them? Paul Paul tells us what happened, and it's it's the same thing that happens to everyone who becomes a Christian. He says that they heard the gospel, that they turned to God from idols, that they are waiting for his son who was raised from the dead to be rescued from the coming wrath. And these these phrases in this verse are so tightly packed in the Greek language that some scholars think that Paul is reciting a poem here, that this was an original Paul, but this was just kind of a, a standard explanation of what it meant to become a Christian, kind of an elevator pitch for the work of the gospel. he says, you've turned from idols. Byron says, religion was important to the Greco-Roman world. Not only did it offer a framework for understanding the universal, it also provided social identity, and in some cases, the possibility for social mobility. Idols are worshiped in Thessalonica as part of trade unions, in funeral observances, in food processing, local politics, and many other facets of society. So the idea that these people would turn away from all that is a big deal. They were literally turning their back on most of the culture around them. They heard this message of the gospel, and they radically altered their lives for the sake of Jesus. It's interesting, Mount Olympus, If you've you've studied Greek mythology, Mount Olympus is where all the Greek gods live. It's 50 miles from Thessalonica. And so all of the Thessalonians could look up to the west and see this mountain where Zeus lived, supposedly. They were living in a constant reminder of the life that they had forsaken. There was always an opportunity in their daily life to turn back to what they used to do to turn back to who they used to be. And this is a challenge for all of us, isn't it? This is why, historically, Christians uh, uh, periodically get this idea that, you know what we need to do? We need to just completely leave society to get all together. We need to go out into the desert where no one will talk to us. And a lot of you are introverts in here, and you're like, sign me up for that. We need to build a monastery with really high walls, and no women, right? <laughs> smart. And, or, or we need to, like, there, there's a current movement of, of, of disengaging from culture. And I understand the draw, right? Like, the, there's all of these things that we don't want to be about, that we don't want to be a part of, that are bad for us, and we know it, and we want to follow Jesus. And it seems like the easiest thing to do would just be to leave, But Paul says that one of the things that's amazing about the Thessalonians is that they didn't do that. They transformed their lives. They rejected the idols of their culture and they stayed and they became a witness to the whole of Greece about how amazing Jesus was. There are so many idols in our culture, power, sex, money, food, drink, fame, control, and hundreds of others probably, that people that we know could, could very easily say, like, why would you deny yourself these things? These are normal things. These are things that make everyone happy. These are things that everybody does. This is just what it, it is to be an American in the 21st century. And for Christians to go like, yeah, I'm not into that. I serve another king. I have another master that's weird. I was talking with a friend yesterday about just this this idea that we are no different than the believers in Thessalonica. Our culture is filled with idols that everybody just assumes are normal. And for us to take a stand and not to be mean or, or, or to be jerks about it, but just to be people that disconnect ourselves from the idols of the world, that it's a witness of the goodness of God. Like, I don't, I don't need that lesser joy because I have a greater one in Christ. Paul says, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and he will return and he will judge the world for, his, for its wickedness. And we are people as Christians that are waiting for something better than the gods of this world can provide. Beauty, goodness, glory, justice, truth, pleasures, these things are only found in Christ ultimately, and they are our inheritance as His people. And the more clearly we see His beauty, the less likely we are to want these other things. I've used this analogy before, and nobody likes it, but I do. So Um, my dog and I go on walks sometimes, and occasionally another dog will have left a present on the sidewalk. I think there's probably some nutritional value there. My dog thinks so. He's tempted by that. I, on the other hand, am not tempted by it. At all. Like there's not even a little part of me that's like, I wonder, the dog seems to like it. Maybe, maybe I don't know what I'm missing. No, it's gross. We can be people who are being so shaped by the gospel and by the power of God that the things of this world are like dog poop. Yeah, they're, they're technically a temptation, but I look at that and go like, man, that doesn't sound appealing at all. Paul thanks God that the Thessalonians are people that have had their senses so tuned to Christ and his goodness and his pleasures and his glory that they have turned away from those other disgusting things. That they have seen them for what they really are and have been repulsed by them. And this is the foundation of their witness. Everybody's talking about it. And this is the reality for us as a church is the church of Jesus Christ will have a reputation. And the question is, what will it be? If we fail to be people that are leaning into Christ and experiencing the power of God in our midst, we will have a reputation of hypocrisy because we will continue to be a church that faithfully teaches the word of God, but if we don't believe it, if we don't live it, we're hypocrites. And the world is watching and they will notice that these are the things that you say, Christians, but they're very different than the things that you do. And this is why the church in this country is in so much trouble, is because the gospel that we proclaim, the life that we live, are so often at odds with each other. John Stott writes, No church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. We need to look like what we are talking about. It is not enough to receive the gospel and pass it on. We must embody it in our common life of faith. And as we see the Thessalonians being these sorts of people, transformed by Jesus, this is the hope that we have today, that God is faithful. Paul rejoices that they've stepped into their calling, that they've been chosen, that they are loved by God, they've experienced his power and are walking in a new life. And this example is changing the world around them. And God offers this to us as well. The Thessalonian story is the story that he wants to tell here among us in the church in Kootenai County in 2023. We can be faithful to Jesus. We can experience the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of a world filled with idols. We can reject them and rejoice in him as an example to others if we wanna be. But besides that, as we close, I. Th- we already are, right? I, I, maybe I have a, a special seat here because I, I interact with, with many of you in different ways, but I'm just so thankful personally for so many of you that, have, that are walking faithfully in suffering that are sharing the gospel with your coworkers like, all the time, that, that give of your money and your time to the poor in our community, that, that make spirit-inspired choices to deny yourself and pour yourself out in service towards others. Like These kinds of things are happening all around us. I see it all the time, and I hope you do too. I hope you see it in your own life. I hope you see it in the lives of other members of this community but I wanna be someone that imitates Paul here and and, and says, I thank God for all of you and the work that God is doing in this community, your willingness to be led by Jesus. So as we we wrap up, we're gonna continue to move into this letter over the coming weeks and Paul is gonna continue to hit on some of these themes that we've seen about turning from idols to good things, about the return of the Lord about what it means to be um, filled with grace and having that pour out in action. Let's do, let's do a little QR. How can we imitate Paul as missionaries to turn North Idaho upside down with the gospel, which would result in famous suffering as Christians? With joy? I think in some ways that is a, is a question that everybody can answer individually. All of the interactions we have with those in this community that don't know Christ are at the first personal interactions, right? We can live lives of Faith and joy and trust around our coworkers, around our classmates, around our friends. I don't know about you, but I constantly have conversations with people who are afraid. They're afraid of not having enough money. They're afraid of the current political administration. They're afraid of the other side getting in next time. They're afraid of people moving away. They're afraid of people moving in. They're afraid of housing prices. They're trying to sell their house and they're afraid of not getting enough for it. Like, it doesn't matter what it is, people are so often motivated by fear in our community. And I just wonder if that's one place where we can step in as men and women who have trusted in Christ and recognize his uh, glorious love for us and his good that he wants for us and say like, yeah, you don't have to be afraid. Like I see the world through a completely different set of lenses than that. And trust me, you don't have to be afraid. And how does that what does that have to do with suffering? I, sometimes that makes people mad. We read in in, in Acts that you know the gospel's preached and, and the apostles, they don't they don't come at everybody with weapons. They're not hostile. They just speak the truth and they, they point to a different kind of life that looks um, completely upside down. And it just makes people mad. Paul says elsewhere that, that we are an aroma, right? And sometimes we smell good to people and sometimes we smell like death. And that's not our fault. It's, it's the hearts of the people that we interact with and I don't think it's a good idea, as as we wrap this up, I don't think it's a good idea to pursue suffering. I don't think we should be people that are, like, on the lookout for suffering. But I think we should expect that if we are living lives that are different from the world around us, if we are saying no to things that the culture says yes to, if we have uh, emotional and spiritual responses to situations that people don't understand, suffering will come. People will not like it because... I am incredibly um, comforted by the fact that you see the world the same as I do. And if you see it differently, then there's tension there. And if there's enough Christians that see the world differently, then that's a lot of tension. And um, I think that leads to persecution. And again, I don't think we should be people that want to be persecuted, but I think the world doesn't like it when there's a group of people who see things differently than they do. There's probably a lot more we could say about that, but we're gonna take communion. And I don't know how any of this has struck us individually this morning. If, if you are frustrated this morning, if you, are, if you feel convicted by sin, if you feel weary from the week, man, if it's a great morning, if you feel filled with hope, no matter where you're at, communion is an opportunity to receive the grace of God afresh. For all of you that are in Christ this morning, you are welcome to this table to take the bread and the cup back to your seat. There's juice and wine for the dictates of your conscience. We'll worship together. You can take communion when you're ready yourself. If you're not a Christian this morning, you can become one. You can just decide that you want to give your life over to Christ, that you want to repent of your sin, believe the gospel, and you can take communion with us as well. And to help us kind of clarify what it means to bear our allegiance to Jesus, we're going to recite the Nicene Creed together before we sing. And I've said it before, if you're new new with us this morning, this this is a 1,700-year-old creed of the church that all Christians everywhere agree on in the midst of all of our differences and all of the fights and arguments that we have as as Christians. We all stand under what this creed affirms, and, and we can affirm it together, and we can show unity with the church in it. So we'll, we'll stand, recite the creed. I'll invite you to the communion table. The band will come up and we'll sing. So let's stand together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, The one begotten from the Father before all the ages, light of light, True out of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, who for us and our salvation came down from heaven and became flesh by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life-giver, the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets, In one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, we confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We expect the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. Lord God, as we transition to worship through song this morning, as we worship through your gifts of your body and your blood shed for us on the cross, God, as we remember the reality of your death, I pray that you would work in our hearts. God, however we need to be led this morning, I pray that you would lead us. Give us insight into our hearts and our souls. Fill us with your spirit. God, for those of us that are suffering this morning, I pray that you would provide joy and peace. God, for those of us that are joyful, I pray that we would rejoice in you That even as we see the good gifts that are around us, that we would recognize that they ultimately find their fulfillment in you. And God, I pray that as we sing, that we would remind each other of these truths and that would sink deep into our hearts and change the way that we see the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.